Well, let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue what we've entitled our series as the Hall of Faith. And again, we've been looking at this chapter as if we were moving through and walking through one of those uh, monuments that we have in our society that we call the Hall of Fame. And by each inductee, we are reminded by God that God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways when it comes to their relationship with God. What allows God to do such a thing is the fact that they have allowed themselves to embrace God by faith. And we've been talking and looking at each of these inductees in the Hall of Faith, learning from their uh, different examples in which the Holy Spirit has given us through each of these particular uh, examples. And as a result, we've been learning from them and how we too can have that same faith that these individuals had when they were required to do so. Today we come to Joseph. We've, we've come as far as verse 21. We're at 22 now. And we come to the individual, the patriarch Joseph. And I have to tell you, this is one that I've been waiting to come to with you together here on Sunday morning because I believe it speaks to an issue that we all need to consider. As we look at the different individuals that the writer of Hebrews has given us, and again, who is the writer of Hebrews? Well, we don't know. God only knows. Many people believe it's Paul. Some people believe it's Luke. There are some who believe it's Priscilla and so forth. Uh, Most likely, it seems as if Paul wrote it, but we don't know for sure, but we know why it was written. As Jewish Christians were struggling under the weight of persecution as they had been expelled from their homeland of Israel into the regions around uh, Israel called Asia Minor, settling in those regions, trying to escape the persecution that they were experiencing there in Jerusalem, they found themselves under a second wave of persecution, but this time by the Roman Empire, due to the fact that they would not embrace Nero, or more specifically, the Caesar as God. Caesar believed that he was God, and he demanded that the individuals under his authority would worship him as God. And for a Jewish Christian, this was prohibited. They could not do so. And as a result, not only did they experience the loss of their homeland and their wealth and their place of prominence and position within the Jewish society once they left Jerusalem... They now found themselves surrounded by a Gentile culture that embraced the idea of uh, many gods, a a plurality of gods, uh, and therefore as one who embraces an individual understanding of God, a monotheistic understanding of God, this was very difficult for them because they were constantly being um, persecuted and excluded from the worship there of the gods, and as a result, people wouldn't do business with them, people wouldn't talk with them, people wouldn't interact with them. And then finally, when they couldn't worship Caesar as God, they became nomads, not in Jerusalem, not in Israel, but amongst the Gentile nations of the world. It was a very difficult situation. I can't stress that enough. I think we can imagine in our mind's eye what that would be like, that if we lost everything that we had due to the simple fact 
that we believed and embraced Jesus Christ. We've lost our personal identity. We've lost our wealth. We've lost our place of position and prominence. We've lost our jobs and careers. Family members have uh, no longer interacted with us due to the fact that we have uh, sold out for Jesus Christ, and now we're left with nothing. Like the Jews who became Christians back then, the temptation would then be to just throw it all in. What's the point? Why should we go through such suffering? Why should we allow ourselves to lose everything for the name of Jesus Christ? What purpose is there to all of this? What profit is there to my life or to anyone else's if I were to lose everything? If you look at the region at that time, though Israel was under civil distress due to the oppression of Rome, the Gentile areas around Israel were in a time of prosperity. Uh, Trade and economics were at an all-time high. Cities were thriving uh, economically. And people were getting very wealthy. In fact, if you look at it from a historical point of view, there was a displacement taking place between the lower class and the upper class. And a middle class was uh, forming in that society that was very unsettling for the upper class. Why? Because individuals who did not have a name of prominence could now hold places of prominence due to their economic stature. And that was very threatening to the upper echelon. But that being said, the Jewish people couldn't even take advantage of that economic prosperity because they were excluded from business transactions due to the fact that they wouldn't worship Caesar as God. And being excluded in that way left them in a very precarious position. And as a result, many of them said, what's the point? I'll just go back to Judaism There doesn't seem to be any reason to continue following Christ at this point. It's just getting too hard to do so. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, don't go back. There's nothing to go back to. And throughout the book of Hebrews, he continuously writes to them, stating how much greater Christ is than all, from Moses to angels, etc., the high priest, and so forth. And then he gives them these examples here in Hebrews chapter 11, reminding them that these individuals continued in their relationship with God by faith, even though their circumstances were overwhelming and told them pretty much or communicated to them pretty much to bail in every sense of the word. When we come to Joseph, and I hate to try to summarize Joseph's life within one verse because it would be wrong to do so. So I would encourage you and I would ask of you that when you have a moment this evening and you're reading your word, because I know all of you read the Bible every day, right? Look at that. Okay, gold star for you too. Oh, it's so important that you do so. Start reading from Genesis 37 on to Genesis 50 and read the whole story of Joseph, and you're going to see a dynamic illustration play out before you of a simple fact that Joseph had a faith that believed despite of his circumstances, and also that Joseph had a faith that acted despite of the impossible. 
And that's where God wants to bring us. He wants to raise us above our personal circumstances to see the long picture. He wants us to see uh, the long game. He wants us to be able to see the ultimate objective for our Christian life and not to get mulled down by the circumstances of the moment and become overwhelmed and drowned at that moment and therefore not seeing any farther than our hand in front of our face. God wants us to see the big picture which really speaks to an issue that I believe is handicapping many Christians today. Many Christians today are captured within what I call the microcosm of their moment, of their day. Feeling that it is the wisest perspective to have to only operate in the, in the confines of the micro uh, moment of their day apart from and exclusive from the macro understanding or the meta narrative of it all. Let me ask you a question. If I were to watch a movie of your life, <laughs> would it have commercials? No. Uh, if I were to watch a movie of your life and I were to uh, zone in on one frame of that movie, would that tell me the totality of your life? No, it wouldn't. And yet so many Christians operate in that manner. They look at the whole world through the lens of this one day that we occupy. And we come to all these conclusions. We make all these decisions completely divorced from the meta narrative or the macro perspective that God wants us to have. Just recently, an article came through Reuters talking about the short-term vision of many in the American society today. And it is demographic in some ways. Older generations uh, have a tendency to think more forward than younger generations do. Some older generations can think 10, 15, 20 years out, where younger generations think 10, 15, 20 minutes out. It's just a fact. I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, I, you know, uh, belittle anybody. It's just the manner in which people have uh, perspectives on life. We have that same perspective in our politics today, don't we? Do we not do what's expedient for the moment at the expense of what's good for the long-term goals in many, many cases? Do we not do that when it comes to um, the matters with family and specifically in the raising of our children? Do we not at the moment try to appease our child rather than disciplining our child because it's easier just to appease than to discipline and yet we're expelling the long-term for the moment? We see this all the time. And then when the child grows up in an undisciplinary fashion, people ask the question, well, I don't know how this happened. I do. Let me play your movie back. Here, here, here you had an opportunity to go long-term and you went short-term and you appeased rather than uh, long-term and you disciplined, allowed them to, uh, to face the consequences, went through the hardship, fought the battle for the end result that would play itself out 10, 15 years from now. We are consumed with the moment. Our marketing strategies when it comes to resale or commercial business 
always predicates on instant gratification, doesn't it? You need this, and you need this now. You need this sump pump, and you need it now. I don't even have a basement, and I want it, because I'm told I need it now. Oh, you can't afford it? Well, you know what? That's absolutely no problem at all. We'll let you finance it, and guess what? You can pay $1 a month for the next 67 years. But you get it at the moment, right? You walk out and say, hey, the monthly payments are great. It's only $1 a month. How long is it for? 67 years. We've all seen these kind of scenarios, haven't we? We've all been in this way. When I went to purchase my last car, they asked me for how long did I want to finance it for. And, you know, usually three years, four years. They were talking eight, nine years. You know, I'm like eight or nine years to finance a car. I'm like, oh my goodness, what are we doing here? Well, it makes the monthly payments more affordable. Really? If I have to pay nine years on a car, trust me, that car is not affordable in any way, shape, or form. See, Joseph succeeded because he took the moment, even in uh, relationships to his overwhelming circumstances, he allowed God to lift him above those circumstances through his faith, and he was able to see the long game. He was able to see the eternal purpose. He was able to look beyond the moment. And if we as Christians can't do this, we're going to struggle deeply in our Christian faith. Because God's going to call upon us at moments and times to sacrifice. Now we need to understand why we're sacrificing at that moment for some reason. And the long term will give us the answer, but maybe not the short term. The short term won't make any sense to us. Well, why am I sacrificing? It doesn't make any sense why I'm sacrificing this. Well, it doesn't maybe in the short term, but it will in the long term. And Joseph was able to do this. And that is what we are going to be looking at this morning as we look in this one verse together. This one verse encapsulates years of Joseph's life and zooms in on the very last moments of Joseph's life there in Genesis chapter 50. And as we look at this together, I want us to be honest with ourselves because I want to tell you that until I truly understood what Christ was trying to communicate through the word about looking at life through a you know, macro perspective, embracing the meta-narrative of the Bible, it wasn't until that moment that I started to get the full rounded understanding of what God wanted to do. When I talk with people about a meta-narrative, people are very resistant to that idea. They don't want to believe that their life is subjected in any way, shape, or form to a meta-narrative. They want to feel as if they are completely independent of any kind of uh, outside influence or any kind of overall meta-narrative or narrative. And when I try to explain to them that that's impossible in so many different ways, they are very resistant to that idea. Because our concept of freedom is a concept that is, in, uh, that is interwoven with independency. But freedom, from the biblical standpoint, is not an independency from God. It's a dependency upon God that leads us from truth to freedom. 
And from that point, then we can embrace the meta narrative, and therefore we have a much better understanding of the world around us. Let me example it for you this way. We see our society around us as it is today. We can draw conclusions about what the future may or may not look like based upon the evidence that we see before us today. But does that necessarily guarantee what the future is going to look like? No, it doesn't. What better guarantees what the future is going to look like is not looking at the moment per se, but it's actually looking at the past. For history can often outline us or outline for us what the future is going to look like if we refuse to learn from the history that we've experienced. And as a result, if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. That's where that phrase came from. And God is saying that you can look at life today through your lens and your eyes, your perspective, this moment, and you can come to all kinds of conclusions. But it doesn't mean that those conclusions are correct. From our vantage point, when we see the nation that we love and live in going in the direction it is, it looks very hopeless, doesn't it? But yet the Bible calls me to be incredibly hopeful. Why? Because in the end, we win. There's a new heavens and a new earth that is waiting for us ultimately to, ex- to have for all eternity that will supersede and truly trans- uh, 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 it'll, it'll truly uh, pass this world in every way, shape, and form. Now, I talk about these things on this level because I want to bring it down to Joseph's level. Because the only way Joseph could look forward and live forward is if he did so by faith. It's our faith that will allow us to see beyond the moment of today. It's our faith that will allow us to learn from the past, seeing what God has done then, and trusting God to do today what he has done then, therefore shaping what he's going to do tomorrow. Does that make sense? Please don't make me repeat that again. I don't think I could. Either I just had a very profound saying or I spoke in tongues, I'm not sure. We'll take it as the, the, the first. But listen to what he says here. In verse 22. Now by faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones, period. Okay, well we're at another one of the inductees that the writer of Hebrews is supposing that we know the backstory. Because there's a lot of blanks to fill in there. What's all this about? Why are we worried about his bones and so forth? The story of Joseph is one of the most fascinating stories of all the Bible. And from Genesis 37 on to Genesis 50, we get the, the entire narrative of his uh, history and what he experienced with God laid out there before us as Moses gives it to us. And as a result, there is so much that we can learn from his life. He was born the 11th son of Jacob. He had, of course, then 10 older brothers and one who was younger, because there were 12 total. These 12 boys became the head of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. At 17, something happened in Joseph's life that really didn't make his brothers all too happy. For one night, Joseph had a dream. 
that he was out in the fields working and they were gathering wheat together and placing them in sheaves. And as the sheaves were being collected and stood up upright, the 11 sheaves of his brothers all bowed down to the sheaf in which Joseph collected, stating that at one time or another, his older brothers and his younger would all bow to him. And so Joseph, doing what every normal sibling would do of a large family like that, he began to say, Dad, guess what? I had a dream and everybody's going to bow to me. Isn't that cool? Well, his older brothers didn't find it so cool. In fact, it was incredibly offensive. And they began to scheme. But then he had a second dream. And this time it had to do with the stars, the sun, and the moon. And now his father Jacob was a little aggravated because the stars, the sun, and the moon, 11 stars, the moon, and the sun, all bowed to Joseph. And the stars represented his brothers, the moon, his, his mother, and the sun, his father. And Jacob says, am I going to bow to you, Joseph? Really? Now, you can totally see a 17-year-old kid saying that, right? Mom and Dad, one day you're going to bow to me. Again, not something that makes for a happy family. So his brothers began to scheme against him and said, you know what? Jacob always favored Joseph. And Jacob wanted Joseph to stand out, so he made him a coat of many colors. And he was given this coat, and undoubtedly Joseph wore it, you know, discreetly around the house, right? Yeah, right. Look at me and my coats. Hi, guys. Reuben, what do you think? Nafali, what do you th- Huh? Looking good, huh? Dad gave it to me. Dad did. And as a result, of course, the tensions began to grow. So the brothers got together and said, that's it. Let's take this guy out in the field and let's just end it. His brothers just say, let's knock him off. Let's just take him out. Let's kill him. But Reuben said, no, you know what? We're not going to have blood on our hands uh, for this. Let's just throw him into a pit and see what happens. So they threw him into a pit. And there in the pit, Joseph's is like, how did I get here? What happened? Why are you doing this? God, what's going on? But then the brothers started to feel a little guilty about what they had done, and they see a caravan from Egypt coming, and they said, you know, listen, why should we just leave him here to die? Let's make some money off this kid. Let's sell him to the Egyptians. So they sold Joseph to the Egyptian caravan that was coming by, and Joseph then made his way to Egypt. The, the brothers took the coat back with some blood speared on it, saying that Joseph had died, and Jacob lamented and wept over it. But now Joseph is traveling, abandoned by his family, on to Egypt, now in slavery, and he ends up working at a man's house named Potiphar, who was a very wealthy man within the kingdom of Egypt. And Joseph was put in charge as the chief steward of all that Potiphar had. And he was very successful, detail-oriented. Joseph was anal in his bookkeeping, and he prospered his, uh, his owner greatly. And so Potiphar couldn't be any more happy than he was. However, though, as Potiphar stood out with the guys playing golf, as he traveled, hit the yacht, you know, skied on the Nile, Potiphar's wife was left home alone. 
And there was Joseph. And the Bible says Joseph was a good-looking guy. So Potiphar started to, you know, eyeball Joseph. Hey there, young man, you look pretty good. And Joseph refused her on every single occasion. Finally, Potiphar's wife had it and tried to just grab him and take him for herself to lie with him in intimacy. And he resisted and his She grabbed off all of his clothes and he ran out of the room to resist the temptation naked only to find himself running right into Potiphar's hands. And of course she came out and said, oh, he tried to have his way with me. Isn't it funny that people can accuse others of things and not be true even back then as they do today, right? And now Joseph finds himself in a precarious position. Potiphar then has him brought before the the, uh, judicial system. He is then thrown into prison and in some cases forgotten there for many, many years. But while in prison, he begins, begins to prosper. And the warden of the prison puts him in charge of all of the other prisoners. And one evening, two individuals have a dream on the very same night. One was a baker and the other one was the cupbearer of the king. And they told their dreams to Joseph and Joseph interpreted them. For the cupbearer, the dream indicated that he was going to be released and once again gain his position before the Pharaoh there in Egypt. So then the baker said, oh, well, good, here's my dream. And Joseph said, well, it's not going to work out for you as well. Uh, You will be killed. Thank you very much. So when the cupbearer was being released to once again assume his responsibilities before Pharaoh, Joseph said, please remember me. And for two years, the cupbearer had forgotten him. Again, just sitting in jail, wallowing away, often in chains around his neck, his hands, and his feet. In that position, not because he did anything wrong, but because he resisted temptation, falsely accused, and now was reaping the consequences of those false accusations. In the perfect will of God, that's exactly where God wanted him. And at no time did Joseph ever stumble or question or deny or doubt God. And finally, after two years after being released, the cupbearer before the king finds himself in a very unique situation for the pharaoh has had a dream now that cannot be interpreted. And so the cupbearer says, listen, there was this guy in jail who told me my dream and the baker's dream. It didn't work out so good for the baker. And now I think he can also tell you what your dream means. And so the pharaoh had Joseph brought before him. And the dream had to do with seven cows that were plump, fat, uh, absolutely healthy, and a dream of seven cows that were lean, thin, and very anorexic in nature. And Joseph said, well, this dream means this, that you're going to have seven years of bounty and, uh, and great abundance, and you're going to have seven years of poverty and famine and, uh, and, and lack. So let's prepare for the second seven years. 
Joseph, even in that position, took that moment to tell the, the Pharaoh, look at this is going to happen. God has revealed it to you through this dream, Pharaoh. Let's prepare for it. And you will see throughout Joseph's life, he was always looking forward. Even from the time in which he resisted Potiphar's wife, he knew that even if he took that moment to lay with Potiphar's wife in that act of intimacy, it would have destroyed and devastated anything going forward with God. And he didn't want to do that. He was looking forward. He says, yeah, I could have this momentary uh, moment of pleasure, but I'm not going to do that because I want the end game. I want the whole picture. I want to please God in every way. And now that he's being told this by Pharaoh, he says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, listen, we got to get on top of this. We got to prepare for these next seven years. And so Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of preparing for those next seven years. He went from the prison to the palace in a matter of moments. Again, perfectly being positioned by God for what God was about to do next. For after the seven years of great plenty, when the famine came about, the famine was so vast that it reached way past the borders of Egypt into the land in which Jacob and his 11 sons remained eventually leading them to try to find food by traveling to Egypt. And when the brothers of Joseph came to Egypt, guess who they had to deal with to obtain the food in which they needed? Their brother Joseph. Thinking that he was dead, thinking that he had been in slavery all of these years, thinking that he was of no mind or no reputation, It is now he in whom they are standing before, and initially Joseph does not tell his brothers who he is. Sends them through a series of tests, finally allowing the brothers and the family all to come to Egypt to be spared from the famine in which hit the land, and Joseph ends up saving all of his family from the incredible famine that had hit the land, and that would be the the uh, method in which God led them to Egypt to remain there for 400 years and will then lead them out by the hand of Moses through the Exodus to bring them back to the children, I'm sorry, to the land in which he promised to the children of Israel. This is the totality of Joseph's life. And if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 50, we read this of him. In verse 22 of Genesis chapter 50, and this is the manner in which the book of Genesis concludes. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Michar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall 
carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. His last instructions were this. Don't leave me here. Don't bury my bones here. Now for a Jewish individual, for an individual in that culture, this was significant. His identity was greatly uh, attached to his place of burial. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. And so when it came to Joseph, Joseph says, I don't want to be identified with Egypt. I want to be identified with the promises fulfilled by God in the land of Canaan. I want to be identified as one who trusted God to perform all that he had promised to us to perform. For 400 years, history tells us that Joseph's coffin there in Egypt remained above ground. And for 400 years, it was a testimony to the people as they walked by it each and every single day that their time in Egypt was limited. Now, the difficulty was this. They fell into the same trap that we do. They started looking at life through the microcosms of the individual days rather than the overall meta-narrative in which God had promised. Joseph continued to trust in the overall meta-narrative, saying that one day God will lead us out of this place, so do not bury me here, but carry my bones out from this place. But the children of Israel became very comfortable in Egypt. They started adopting a lot of the practices and a lot of the social customs of Egypt. They became very integrated into the society to the point that they became a, uh, what would be considered a, uh, a demographical threat to the Egyptian people because they were more numerous than many of the, of the lines or the historical lines of Egypt. It became a real problem. But they started looking at everything through the lens of the day. They knew that a deliverer was whispered about. They knew that one day God would come and get them, possibly. But because they couldn't see it happening within their own lifetime, they began to live for the temporal moment rather than the eternal glory. And this is what we have got to get by. We've got to cease from living in the temporal moment and move back to that eternal glory and say, I don't know what's going to happen today, tomorrow, or the next day, but overall I know what's going to happen. And I'm going to live in accordance with that. I'm going to make changes today that would prepare me for what is still yet to come. I'm sure we've all been in that position at one time or another. Maybe you haven't, and I'm happy for you, but for us who have. You go to your doctor on a yearly basis for a checkup. And the doctor says, listen, you need to drop a few pounds. So come back and see me in a year, and let's see where you're at, and so forth. So you leave the doctor's office feeling pretty good about how you feel, and so forth. Well, I just have to lose a few pounds, and so forth. And so you're like, well, I've got plenty of time. I've got a whole year to do it, right? So what's the, per- what's the point if I stop at Krispy Kreme on the way home? I can start tomorrow. And then tomorrow, oh, Chipotle sounds so good. And then the next day, you know, and then the next day. Now you're two weeks before your year appointment, in the future, and you're trying to sweat out 50 pounds in in two two weeks because you haven't prepared. You didn't make the choices in response to it, and now all of a sudden that next appointment's upon you, right? 
We all believe that Jesus Christ is physically going to return to this earth. But do we live in accordance with that? We believe that a new heavens and a new earth will be our place for all of eternity. But do we live today in the moment as that being a reality? Or do we simply say, well, I don't see it happening in my lifetime, so therefore I'm not going to worry myself about it. Think about that rationale. Think about that for a moment. Because this is the trap that we are trapped within. Joseph saw way beyond. He allowed his faith to raise him up above his circumstances. Instead of being overwhelmed and in that moment of being overwhelmed start to doubt, question, shake and begin to uh, unravel, he allowed the faith to lift him up. Instead of doing what was wrong, well, who cares if I have this moment of pleasure with Potiphar's wife? What does it mean in the grand scheme of things? Yet he resisted. When he was in the prison, he could have said, well, God has abandoned me here. I don't know what God's doing. I didn't do anything wrong and I'm in prison. And yet Joseph waited on the Lord and the Lord in a matter of moments brought him from the prison to the palace. I'm saying our momentary perspective can be completely wrong. And therefore, why draw any macro conclusions about God based upon the micro experience of today? This is huge, guys. I wish I could get this through to all of us because we can often be wrong about God in His grace and in His goodness and His love and His mercy when we simply misinterpret the moment in light of the absence of the meta-narrative. What mattered to Joseph was not so much the events or the circumstances of his life, but his response to them. Because of his long-term vision and his faith in God, he saw everything that he went through at the moment through those lenses. And he reacted accordingly. With God's help in any situation that we find ourselves in, let us be reminded that all things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Think about that for a moment. We read these verses that Joseph sat in jail. It could have been up to 12 years that Joseph was there. 12 years of his life. It would be so easy to come to a vast array of conclusions based upon that personal experience, right? He would have given up. Then when that moment presented itself where he could interpret those dreams, he might not have taken advantage of it. Which then would not have led him to the moment where he could stand before Pharaoh and interpret his. And even now, as Joseph is dying, And the children of Israel are completely now engulfed in the Egyptian society. He says, this is not where it's going to end. So don't leave me here. Don't leave my bones here. This is not where it's going to end. Where everything from his circumstances would have told him otherwise, he said, no way, God is bigger than this. So the next time you are faced with those kind of overwhelming circumstances, don't allow it to be something that hinders you, but allow it to be an opportunity where you can see God do something incredible. And let him do it. 
Joseph had no buddy to help him. He was dying, and he had to completely be uh, on the reliance of others to carry him out of that particular place. I want to read just a couple quotes to you, if I may. The point to note is this, one writes, whoever lost his faith in the promises of God, he believed and followed God no matter the circumstances and no matter what it cost him. He was a man of God in a foreign land, a man who demonstrated an undying and undenying faith of God. One wrote, he said at the end of Joseph's life, when Joseph was dying in a foreign land with his family, settled and rooted in the land of Goshen, Egypt, yet he believed the impossible that God would be moving his family land of Israel and eventually give them the promised land altogether. Therefore, he commanded that his bones be taken back where the nation of his family returned to the land. And Joseph's faith was undying faith. His body was dying, but not his faith in God. And in God's promises, he knew that he would rest in the promised land of God. And then when he concluded, he said this, Joseph's faith testified for years after his death all during the time when the children of Israel saw Joseph's coffin and asked, why is it still there and it has not been buried? They could be answered because the great man Joseph did not want to be buried in Egypt, but in the promised land, God will one day lead us. And what blows me away is this, that God answered that request. And the Bible tells us that the moment that God prepared the people to leave Egypt and to head back to the land in which he was going to give them, it was none other than Moses himself. In chapter 13 of Exodus, verse 19, that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, For Joseph had made all the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. But when Moses was excluded from entering into the promised land, the bones of Joseph, then what happened to them at that point? At that point, Joshua carried them in. I love God fulfilling his... Oh, you're, you're going to get there, Joseph. Don't worry. Even if you die, you're going to get back there. I'm going to make sure of it. I'm going to have Moses carry you out. I'm going to have Joshua carry you in to the promised land. One wrote, he says, we have to admire the faith of the patriarchs. They did not have a complete Bible, and yet their faith was strong. They handed God's promises down from one generation to another. In spite of all of their failures and testings, these men and women believed God and he bore witness to their faith. How much more faith you and I should have each and every day based simply upon the example in which they give us. Today I want to ask you a question. And it's a question that can change your Christian life. Are you looking long-term or are you looking short-term? 
just the next week, the next day, the, the next hour. Some of you may be saying, well, I'm just simply trying to survive life. I'm just trying to get through. And it seems like anytime I try to do any kind of long-term planning, something changes. Yes, it's going to change. Every time I try to do some kind of long-term planning, you know, something goes awry. Yes, it's going to go awry. But again, it's not our circumstances that we are concerned with. It's how we respond to our circumstances that we are concerned with. And if you respond to your circumstances at the moment with the vision of the moment and with the knowledge of the moment, you are going to make a decision that is faulty because it doesn't take the overall into consideration. Joseph could have done that many times in his life, chose not to, and looked at the long term. I don't know what I'm doing here in prison, God, but I'm going to trust you. I don't know why that woman tried to rip my clothes off, but I'm going to run away and I'm going to trust you. Me threw me into a pit and then sold me into slavery, but I'm going to trust you, Lord. I don't know why you have my brothers now coming back to me as I'm in charge of Egypt because of Pharaoh, but I'm going to trust you, Lord. In each and every case, Joseph is a beautiful example of one who rose above his circumstance. Let me leave you with these three takeaways. Number one, we must allow our faith to look past our circumstances of the moment. We have to allow our faith to let us look past the circumstances of the moment. We must allow our faith to do what is right in the moment of those circumstances. It's often when we become overwhelmed with the circumstances of life that we may waver or we may succumb to temptation because we feel it's an expedient out from the moment. But God would say, trust me at that moment. Don't do something irrational. Don't do something that's going to harm you even further. Don't do something, uh, don't make a knee-jerk decision at this moment, but trust me to work it all out. And number three, we must allow our faith to lead us forward in confidence. So many today in their personal walk with life seem like they're just spinning their wheels in the mud. And if you feel that way, maybe it's because you've allowed your circumstances to dictate to you at this moment where you are at with the Lord and you're therefore no longer able to see that long term and you're, able, you're not able to walk that long term walk because you're overwhelmed with the moment. I see this all the time. When Jesus began to minister to people, he was constantly telling them to look forward. Don't look back. Don't look side to side, look forward. Jesus constantly reminded us that there was more to this life than just what's here on this earth. That there's a reality that this uh, particular physical reality is actually in subjection to. There's more going on. And our faith allows us as like a, a, a seventh sense to indicate that the reality of that meta-narrative is just as real to me as the physical reality in which I occupy. And therefore, I can walk with confidence. Life of Jesus, he lived in communion with the Father. Let me ask you a question. Was the Interaction between him and the father more a reality to him than even his interaction with the people around him? Yes, I would have to say it was. Because it was at the moment that that 
that relationship was severed at the cross that was the most devastating to Jesus. When Jesus prayed in John 17, he asked that people would see him in his glorified state, that he would return to that state in which he left to come and to save you and I. That was the reality in which Christ lived in, not the reality of this world. Those 33 years of Jesus' existence on this earth is not the totality of his, his complete existence, is it? It went from eternity past to eternity forward. Why then are we constantly walking in the minimal understanding and light that we have here at the moment? And not taking into consideration the overall meta-narrative of the entire scripture. Well, some may say to me, well, doesn't Jesus say that don't worry about tomorrow for today's troubles are worrisome for themselves? Yeah, but he's talking about worry. He's talking about you being worried and anxious and overrun by that worry. And the reason you are is because all you're taking into existence are the things of this day. And he says, don't worry about tomorrow. He's trying to get you to look past just tomorrow because he wants you to see farther into the future. If Joseph was just worried about tomorrow, he'd say, hey guys, listen, you know, when I die, put me in a casket and then hide me somewhere, you know. But he wasn't looking at tomorrow. He was looking at the long term. Take care. Get me out of here. This is huge for us. And I hope that we will consider this together as you and I learn what it means to walk by faith with the Lord. If we are to walk by faith, then we must allow our faith to look past the circumstances of the moment. If we are going to walk by faith as Joseph did, we must allow our faith to move us to do what is right at those moments rather than to fall to temptation and to do what's wrong. If we work by faith like Joseph did, then we are going to live forward, looking forward in confidence, knowing that what God has promised, he is able to perform.